0: Thank you, Rachel. And I think I I know everyone here, but there may be people online. So I am Daniel, I'm also one of the pastors here. And I don't want anyone to be alarmed, but we have a lector this morning. And so (laughs) Ben Gibbons is going to read uh, our scripture. And while he's working his way up, I just want to note that not only is this practice of having a lecture something that's practiced in the church throughout the world, but that this particular passage is being read in many churches around the world today, too, and so this is an opportunity for us to be part of this giant global family of two billion-odd misfits like us in some way or another, and uh, I'm grateful, Ben, that you volunteered and brought forward the possibility of, of the ministry of
1: lecturing, so thank you. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. I am going to share with you today a reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. i get myself centered here. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your father in heaven he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous if you love those who love you what reward will you get are not even the tax collectors doing that and if you greet only your own people what are you doing more than others do not even pagans do that be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect the gospel of the lord
0: and if you would like to say thanks be to god you may I love this passage, and this is one of the core passages that I have wrestled with and that I understand as fundamental to what Jesus teaches and and what he is doing in the world in and through us and beyond anything I want to really reflect on today as we get ready for Lent, which is a season where we prepare for Easter, where we meditate on our mortality and our limitedness, and Uh, I want to invite us to really weigh the possibility this morning of giving up a fear for Lent. And I want to really clarify what I mean by that. I want to spend some time on this because I think, especially in our context, there's a lot of ways that that can be misheard. And I want to really clarify that I mean the type of fear that prevents us from doing things like loving enemies. And the other things that Jesus teaches here in the Sermon on the Mount, or you can call it the Covenant on the Mount, I'll get into that in a little bit, loving enemies, living in joyful solidarity with the poor, pouring ourselves out to care for the poor and the needy in our community, and the work of reconciliation, which is uh, deeply involved where Jesus talks here about taking a plank out of your own eye. I think that's one of the best images to start by thinking about what reconciliation is, is, is learning to be a people who are eager to correct our own mistakes, and to learn and to grow and to not, Stigmatize means shame, making mistakes either. I think it's part of becoming that kind of a reconciling community. It also means that we take mistakes seriously. And all of those things, reaching out to uh, people who are in need, that takes a kind of courage. And I think, because I'm, I'm pretty sure this is a room full of humans, I don't like to speculate too wildly, but I think because this is a room of humans, we probably have experiences where fear prevents us from engaging in solidarity with the poor. I think we probably have experiences where fear prevents us from the work of reconciliation and of uh, confessing mistakes and receiving forgiveness uh, And giving forgiveness all of those parts fear can easily hold us back from those things And there are fears that hold us back from loving enemies I want to dig into this particular passage some too because I think there are also a lot of warranted concerns Which is also something we talk about when we talk about fear and I think there's, especially uh, now, as we might be getting another surge of norovirus uh, coming in, which you know makes you puke and poop a lot, very unpleasant, if you are to wear a mask, especially if you're around somebody who vomited or you're washing your hands more regularly, those are very wise steps to take. And it, and it would be very silly for me, I think, to say, we're giving up a fear for Lent and we're giving up the fear of norovirus, and, and to show that I'm going to not wash my hands, right? And we've had a lot of this sort of thing, though, with COVID, too, the way we responded to COVID. Not a a, a few churches used this idea of not fearing in order to justify not taking decent, prudent steps. In a similar way, I think, just as another example for something that's going on right now that I need to touch on here, because I don't want to be misheard, it's possible that I could be saying... Don't be afraid that church leaders might never mess up or engage in spiritual or sexual abuse. You need to give up that fear for what? That would be, I think, a problem. Uh, there are, if you're unaware of it, there are a number of issues coming up in vineyard churches, including uh, one in Minnesota that was um, important for forming some people in our ministry, where one of the individuals there is accused of molestation issues or various sorts of things, and so especially given this context. I want to be very clear that when I talk about giving up a fear, I'm not talking about mindlessly submitting to church authorities and giving up the possibility of ever thinking that they could do something wrong. I think we need to have good child protection policies in place, good adult protection policies in place, and we need to have a culture of a willingness to actually engage in the work of reconciliation so that we confront abuses in the church. and a, Good fear that we might want to give up would be the fear of speaking out about those sorts of things and engaging in that kind of work, that hard part of the work of reconciliation, which is speaking plainly about what we understand to be problems. And so with all of that, I think this passage is especially important to really read carefully and well in the context of all of Jesus's teachings, because it would be awfully easy, for example, to see us say, well, Jesus, you, you said, uh, do not resist an evildoer. But then if I just cut forward in Matthew, even just a little bit, but I mean, especially in Matthew 23, for example, you're really laying it on thick. And it sure looks like you are resisting spiritual abuse within your community and within your society. But I thought you said, do not resist an evildoer. So, gotcha, Jesus. Bazinga. It would be easy to read it that way. And I think it's worth really thinking about this word resist. Uh, It it contains the root anti in it. And and in its basic sense, it means set yourself against an evildoer. And what Jesus is describing here, one of the ways that I think it would have been very sensibly understood and deployed in this context, does involve overcoming a fear. Often we will set ourselves against other people because of threat responses, and we will say, I am a fundamentally different kind of being than you are. I'm a human, and you are some kind of monster or animal. This kind of thing happens whenever there's a war. This is how, if you go to either side of the conflict in Ukraine right now, for example, you will have people saying and thinking and feeling that way about each other. This is how human beings, in general, respond to extreme threats to our lives. And I think that what Jesus is saying here, in terms of setting yourself against, is he's saying, don't do it that way don't oppose the evil that is happening by mirroring back their threat responses, their fearful way of being. I'm gonna show you a different way. And one of those, I love this image of actually carrying a pack for an extra mile from a Roman soldier. So a Roman soldier could basically command a Judean peasant to carry his pack. And I really think that people took this sort of thing literally. And they say, cool, you, I have to carry your pack for a mile. And hey, by the way, I'm going to go above and beyond. Why? Because I'm actually not going to make this into me being against you. Okay? But if you're carrying a pack for somebody for two miles, you're probably going to have some time to talk to them. Right? And presumably, the people who are formed by this whole body of teaching that Jesus demonstrates one of the things they're likely to talk about is that they think that the son of God and the true son of David, the proper heir to the throne of Judah, is Jesus. And he taught us to do this. He taught us to be this way. And in them saying all of those things, they're in fact utterly subverting all of the power structures around them. Like in a lot of ways, those are fighting words. They're saying Jesus is the proper, to say he's the son of God, is to say he is the proper emperor. Not your guy. Sorry, I will carry your bag for you. I just, while we're at it, let me inform you that, you know, your guys going to last for a little while and these empires rise and fall. This is what our Jewish heritage has taught us for a long time. And, uh, but I know the true king, and his kingdom will never fall, and it will last forever because it is supported by the one true God. So I just, I'm happy to carry your bag, and I thought you might like to know that. <laughs> right? um, not because I am setting myself against you, but because I have a true story and the true story that I believe God is telling in this world, that transforms these kinds of relations. Which brings us, I think, to the end of this section of Matthew. So it goes from five to seven, and I really want to highlight this piece of the text, because it's part of what underlies that idea, and that narrative I sort of drew out there in a different way, which is that you can do things another way, and it sure seems to work better for a while, or in certain contexts. But the claim here that Jesus makes, and you're, you can accept it or reject it, I'm happy to talk about whether you think this is true or not, but I want to clarify what, what is at least being said. And so towards the end, this is the close of this whole body of teaching. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? and do many deeds of power in your name, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And there's a lot of ways to read that. I think that in context, and this is something I'll emphasize again and again as we work through Matthew, when Jesus is here talking about a house falling, The most immediate senses would be uh, a royal house or a temple, which are both closely connected. He's prophesying and warning that our way of doing things, including attempting a violent rebellion against Rome, which would happen 40 years after he taught this, will result in the collapse of our society. And yet! And there is a really powerful and yet that's implicit in all of this. Jesus doesn't draw it out right there. But the Gospel of Matthew draws it out through telling this account of his death and his resurrection and his enduring presence, and that he sends his disciples out to all the world that the story doesn 't end there there's a cliffhanger there at seven, right, and we are left to wonder first of the person who he says, "Get away, get away from me what, what, what happens next and also then this house collapses. What happens next And what the Hebrew prophets consistently teach and what Jesus consistently teaches is that God's love endures forever. God will continue to work and pursue us and pursue humanity and pursue uh, our nation and all nations and all peoples. And that doesn't mean that cruelty and evil and violence and deception get to do whatever they want. That's the point here. That you don't get to say, hey, we're doing Jesus stuff and then go and kill people and have that not called out in the fullness of time. And it doesn't matter if you had all kinds of miracles or you had all kinds of famous prophets doing these sorts of things. And I think it's especially important to really dwell on that passage because we have in our own context right now a lot of false prophecy that happens, that has a massive, well-funded infrastructure around it that claims things about politics, for example. And and it was, for example, central to the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. That kind of false prophetic movement is a huge factor in our society today. And it's as if Jesus is speaking straight to us, that he's saying, that's not me, that's not what I'm about. There's gonna be people who claim that that's what I'm about. But what I'm about is loving enemies, joyful solidarity with the poor, the work of reconciliation, and forming communities rooted in those practices. And when that happens, the fruit of the Spirit grows, and we find love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, we see those things growing. And that's what's real. And that other stuff, part of why I think Jesus speaks to it in his generation and in ours so plainly, is because that stuff can seem, first, so appealing to some people, but for those who don't get drawn into it, it can seem uh, so incredibly intimidating and so incredibly powerful. And in that context, it's a word of comfort to say, those kinds of structures and those ways of being, which involve fundamentally taking the name of Jesus in vain, those don't get to continue. And so when I talk about giving up a fear for Lent, we really think about then, what does it take to lean into this way of being a little bit more? I wanna to emphasize too that it's really, really hard. <laughs> and I could go through any of these areas if really—if it's not just a series of, of talking points, but I really let these sit in my heart. These each challenge me. There are ways where I am not engaging in solidarity with the poor and caring for the poor as deeply as I would like to. And part of the reason for that is because I'm distracted and uh, overwhelmed by other things. But part of it's because I'm afraid. I'm afraid that I might get drawn into relationships and connections that take more from me than I think I can give. Now, I want to be clear. It's good to have healthy boundaries. And part of this work involves us engaging in it together as a community and not just trying to save everyone on our own. Jesus is addressing a community of disciples, and he addresses us now, too. Similarly, the work of reconciliation is freaking terrifying. Right, to really say, now it's easy to point out somebody else's flaws, right? That's pretty easy. But to really share something where I have made an error, where I have made a mistake, and it's not just something superficial, but it's something uh, deep, that takes real courage. That takes setting aside a fear to be able to do. And that's, I think, the kind of fear we can and should set aside because we trust in God's love and God's goodness. And the same can be said for enemy love. And in a sense, this example of the enemy gets most directly at the problem of threat and the problem of social threat that we feel. And the core of being able to start taking baby steps into enemy love, which is as much as I've done and as much as I think any of us do, especially relative to Jesus, to even start taking steps in that direction involves finding a fear or multiple fears and being willing to give them up. And so what would it look like if we really thought about a fear that we would like to give up for Lent? I'd also like to emphasize that this doesn't, like, it can be, like, it's like lancing a boil or something like that. Like, a lot of this can seem really hard, or like exercising. Maybe that's the one that really hits me more to my heart. Uh, Like, it seems really hard to, like, do it, but the, the resistance to releasing a fear to God is actually the hardest part. And often good things open up after we do that. And one for me, and this is why I'm glad Dana is going to preach on this in a couple of weeks, that one for me is a fear of resting. And part of why I'm glad Dana's is going to preach on it is because I, if I'm going to preach on something, I really try to not be a hypocrite and think about it. And so if Dana preaches on this, I can be a hypocrite about it a lot more easily. <laughs> I was really thinking about this yesterday. I was reading, I was reading all about uh, the temple and Sabbath and, and the beauty of Sabbath. Uh, while, and, it, and it was my way of doing some of my homework that I have to do right? <laughs> on Saturday. And, uh, and to really think about the fears that keep us from resting. Right? Do we think that we have to work constantly? Do we think that if we take a day of rest, that we'll completely fall behind or something like that? And so these fears that we release, they can also... I think all of those, actually, that I mentioned can be really liberating. But part of what we might be liberated into is just rest. And so, I do want to take, I think we have a little extra time here today, which is what I was hoping would happen. I want to reflect a little bit on the Asbury revival, and I want to make space for the Holy Spirit to move, and for us to really meditate on this, and then to just offer a completely open mic for anything that anybody wants to share, uh, that you feel like God might have for you to share. And so, uh, this might also include that the first fear you give up in preparation for Lent is a fear of standing up and sharing something. <laughs> uh, so, just a couple thoughts on the Asbury outpouring, or renewal, or revival. People are using some different language for it. I was hoping to go on Thursday, but uh, it looked we were going to do like a day trip, but there were storms all along the way, both ways of our trip, and so Carla and I opted out of going and today they are planning to have their final service at 7:30 tonight and sort of close out what has been a couple weeks of sustained prayer and if uh has anyone seen the little sermon that started the the thing it was the chapel service at asbury that's awesome nobody has which means that i can make up whatever i want but no <laughs> uh, more to the point uh, i can i could summarize it for you and no one will feel that that's redundant so the individual got up and shared, and he was teaching chapel. And for me, some of the things that stood out about it were, first, he talked about his own pain and his own experience of, ex- of being sexually abused. He touched on it. He didn't go into a lot of detail, but he touched on that. And he also touched on the ways in which the church has hurt people. And he was reflecting on some of that. These are both areas that are central to the ministry that I think God's calling all kinds of churches to, but especially our church has often been a place where people get wounds bandaged up Uh, from the church, and from those types of experiences. And so, it was just immediately very close to my heart, what he was sharing. It also struck me that as we think about removing planks from our own eyes, right, that can include our own personal eyes, but that can also include us as the church, removing planks from our church eyes, right? It's one thing for Christians to critique our problems in the church. We're in a privileged position with respect to that. Uh, in a way that when people outside critique it, it often just bounces off. And so that's part of what I believe unfolded there and what the Holy Spirit moved in and through. And I love that. I also uh, just want to thank our friend Thomas Lyons. He visited our church a little bit beforehand. He actually did his, uh, his dissertation on revivals at Asbury and finished a couple years ago. And I think that uh, his work and the work of other people like it helped that community, like him, uh, help that community have a lot of wisdom in how to handle this. It's not at all uncommon for there to be these kinds of ecstatic experiences and for them to go in a direction that is very damaging or for people to jump in and uh, uh, start manipulating what is happening because in part, people go into a very vulnerable space and they let go of a lot of fears. And sometimes when people have fully given up a lot of fears, wolves in sheep's clothing are very happy and eager to abuse those situations. And they had to deal with that sort of dynamic, and from everything I hear, I wasn't there personally, but I have friends who I trust a lot who were there, they just handled it beautifully. They set healthy boundaries, they helped keep the space as a space of the Holy Spirit's gentle reconciling work. Uh, And they centered it on Jesus and the work that Jesus has done on the cross and continues to do in and through us in that work of forgiving sins and bringing us into a deeper kind of community together. And when that happens, I believe it is inevitable that in different ways it pours out as things like true enemy love being practiced in our communities, like real joyful solidarity with the poor and addressing injustices, Uh, and the work of reconciliation not just happening between individuals and God, but of God reconciling communities and family systems uh, to his way of peace as well. And so I was just moved by what I've heard and seen from that. And I wanted to just share, too, the sense that I believe that they understood some of the potential pitfalls and have done a beautiful job avoiding them. Another thing that I want to share from the youth conference was the whole thing was was just beautiful and spoke to the same What I believe is wisdom in stewarding the presence of the Holy Spirit. So on uh, Saturday night uh, Anthony who's an amazing pastor of Vineyard Columbus spoke and He's just so vulnerable like he was really nervous about doing a bad job for the kids He had a bunch of the youth come up and pray for him and like 20 youth mobbed him and prayed for him. So it's a really good start And he just preached the gospel and then he invited the Holy Spirit invited sharing time. And there were so many kids just wanting to share what was going on in their lives, including really hard stuff, that uh, eventually the worship leader, uh, who had done a wonderful job, said, I think we're about out of time. We have to get ready for the beach party, and so we need to do that. And so I'm sorry we're not going to be able to have everybody share who wants to share, but the Holy Spirit isn't just here. The Holy Spirit's everywhere. The Holy Spirit's working everywhere. And and, he, and, and then the kids shouted, No! We're going to keep sharing testimonies! <laughs> and, and as it turned out, it's one of the stage point out too that there was enough time on the schedule and he, and he was slightly wrong about the schedule. And I actually love both sides of that. I love that the, that the youth had this spirit uh, working in and through them and this authentic desire to continue to share. And I also really liked what he had to say, even though he was slightly off about the time, that I don't think it's the case that for example, God decided to show up at Asbury and isn't showing up in all kinds of places all the time. But, I, but something weird did happen. It's not the case that every time a seminary has chapel, it goes for two weeks or whatever, three weeks, right? <laughs> like that, that there's something in people's hearts that was responding to what I believe is the constant invitation and the constant outflow of the Holy Spirit and that happened in community uh, and that it was beautiful and that it was good. And so, My best guess is that y'all aren't going to just suddenly start praying for three weeks, and I think that's okay. (laughs) And if it were to happen, that would also be okay. Um, I think we could have a sense of peace about the different ways the Holy Spirit works in in community. Um, And appreciating, I think, just that core dynamic of it. So I wanted to share those thoughts as we go into a time, and I do really want to set aside a good three minutes for each of us to be silent, I'm gonna hold the microphone and just be silent, to reflect on anything you want, but especially if there is a fear that you don't need, it's not a healthy fear, that you would like to work on letting go of for Lent. So come Holy Spirit, bring the gentle weight of your loving presence and help us to hear from you. Does does anyone have anything at all that they feel like sharing with the congregation?
2: I'm Kimberly Boyne and we've been attending this church since August of last year. I really resonated with the waiting that Eve shared waiting for what God wants us to do in a leadership role here at Central Vineyard and um, I have a, a little song with your permission that's my first language it's called Who Am I and it's an introduction from me to you about what my heart is for your children should I be in ministry or for the women Of this church. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth? I'm going to start higher. I'm suddenly going from baritone to uh, tenor to alto after having laryngitis. This is a casting crown song.
3: Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name? But because of who you are, I am a flower quickly fading, here today and gone tomorrow, a wave tossed in the ocean, a vapor in the wind. Still you hear me when I'm calling, Lord you catch me when I'm falling, and you told me who I am. I'm yours, I'm yours.
2: One last thing I'd like you to know about me just for today is on March 12th of this year, I will suddenly, um, my fears of grief. I will celebrate the loss of my first child, my youngest brother. He died 50 years ago on March 12th of a heart defect. He lived 20 months. We walked him to heaven. And the church was very cruel to my family. If you just pray right, he'll live. And that was a lie. And I have chosen, I've chosen a different path. But my parents came back to the Lord as they died a few years ago. And I'm so grateful because they're waiting in heaven and they're with David. But if any of you have had loss through miscarriage or the loss of a child, I want you to know that you're not alone, and that I grieve with you, and if you need to call anybody, I would be that person. And uh, as we say in recovery meetings, now
0: I'll pass. Thank you so much, Kimberly. Thank you, Kimberly, so much. What a gift you are, and what a gift that was, too. Give it another minute in case anyone wants to share anything else. I just love you all so much. And so, moving into Communion, we practice open Communion here, which means anyone who wants to participate is welcome to. Uh, I should have full disclosure that participating in Communion is a way of saying yes to the way of Jesus and yes to the things we One is welcome to participate, given that understanding. And in offering this strange Passover meal that we've been celebrating, Continually since then uh, Jesus showed his unending love His enduring presence and his own complete commitment to the Covenant we explore today when Jesus says love your enemies and don't set yourself against them That's what he demonstrated in and through the cross among many other things He demonstrated in and through the cross which is part of what we commemorate here. And So on the night that Jesus was betrayed and He knew full well that he was being betrayed and he still dined with Judas he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And as we wait in joyful hope for the turn of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead, we continue to participate in this feast and accept Jesus's invitation into his way of love. These come forward up to here. Uh, There's some in the middle here too, and some on the sides. Let me move the middle piece to the middle.